Hey everybody, welcome back to the Elon Musk podcast. This is a show where we discuss the critical crossroads that shape SpaceX, Tesla, X, The Boring Company, and Neuralink. And I'm your host, Will Walden. There's a company called BYD, or Bide for short. It's a huge automotive company, and it's on the verge of surpassing Tesla as the global leader in EV sales. Now, this is a huge change in the EV market, and this means that China is increasing its influence in the global automotive sector. Now, despite the dominance of established auto brands like Toyota, Volkswagen, General Motors, Chinese companies, notably BYD and SAIC Motor Corp, have made significant strides in the industry. Now, China has recently surpassed the United States, South Korea, and Germany in passenger car exports, contending with Japan for the global lead. Now, this is attributed to the aggressive expansion of Chinese manufacturers in the EV world. It's no longer about the size or the legacy of the company, but rather the speed of innovation and iteration. BYD's proactive approach has set a new pace in the industry, compelling others to accelerate their own advancements. And the competition between Tesla's Elon Musk and BYD's Wang is becoming increasingly evident. Musk's concerns over affordability contrast with Wang's aggressive marketing of more affordable models. Now, this competition is reshaping the EV market, with BYD offering a broader range of accessible vehicles. Now, Musk acknowledged the competitiveness of their vehicles, a significant shift from his previous dismissive stance of the company. Now, this change is due to BYD's remarkable progress in the EV sector, a realization of Wang's long-term vision for the company. And despite Bide's domestic success, the company faces challenges in international markets. Trade tensions and potential tariffs in Europe and the U.S. complicate its global expansion. Now, this is about geopolitical challenges that Chinese automakers face in exporting their models to foreign markets. Now, this can be solved if they make plants in the United States or in Europe because they don't have to import anything to those countries then. Now, Wang, unlike Musk, maintains a low profile, avoiding social media and public appearances. However, his statements about Chinese brands challenging the status quo in the auto industry shows that he's confident in BYD's capabilities and the potential of the Chinese EV market. Warren Buffett has a stake in this too. Berkshire Hathaway recognized BYD's potential early, investing significantly in the company. The payoff was substantial, reflecting the company's growth and success in the EV market. And Charlie Munger, the late vice chairman of Berkshire, viewed BYD primarily as a strategic battery investment, praised the company's focus on crucial technological advancements in the EV sector, which has been pivotal in its growth. And Bide's journey began with the acquisition of a falling state-owned automaker and the launch of its first plug-in hybrid, the F3DM. Early government subsidies and BYD's unique position as a battery manufacturer aided its growth in the nascent EV market. Munger lauded Wang's leadership and engineering focus at Bide, which played a crucial role in the company's development. This approach differentiated Bide from its competitors and has been a key factor in the success of the company. And Bide's hiring of international talent, such as Wolfgang Egger and other notable designers, marked a shift in its approach to car design and quality. This move helped the company transition from producing basic models to more sophisticated. Competition is fueled by government subsidies here and has been a major driver of innovation in China's EV market. This intense competitive environment is expected to propel Chinese manufacturers to a significant global market share by the end of the decade. 
And although Tesla currently surpasses Byde in several financial metrics, analysts predicts that Byde will close these gaps significantly in the near future. Now, this projection is based on the company's continued growth and innovation. Now, Wang's personal journey, though, from a humble background to becoming a billionaire, mirrors kind of the rise of Biden. He has a relentless pursuit of growth and innovation, and it's been integral in Biden's success in its expansion in the global market. Now, Biden's strategy for maintaining its leadership position involves focusing on advanced tech, including automated driving technologies. However, the company faces very stiff competition from both established and emerging players in the EV market, such as Rivian and Tesla, of course. And Wang's response to whether Bide could rival Toyota highlights the fluid nature of the EV industry. Its success will depend on technological advancement and market responsiveness. Move really fast. Get these things out there as fast as possible and new tech to the market before anybody else. And this is how Bide will maintain its competitive edge over companies like Tesla. And as Bide assumes a leading position in the EV market, overtaking Tesla, it faces the challenges of reinventing itself over and over to stay ahead, constantly innovating. And this requires a shift in strategy from being a challenger to setting new benchmarks in the industry, being better than everybody else constantly. Now, they have an ability to innovate and adapt, and that will be crucial in defining its future trajectory in defeating Tesla to be the number one selling EV brand in the world. Hey, thank you so much for listening today. I really do appreciate your support. If you could take a second and hit the subscribe or the follow button on whatever podcast platform that you're listening on right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. It helps out the show tremendously and you'll never miss an episode. And each episode is about 10 minutes or less to get you caught up quickly. And please, if you want to support the show even more, go to patreon.com slash stage zero. And please take care of yourselves and each other. And I'll see you tomorrow. Over two years ago, the U.S. government allocated $5 billion to construct a nationwide network of fast charging stations for EVs. Now, this initiative was part of a bipartisan infrastructure law aimed at alleviating range anxiety among potential electric vehicle buyers or EV buyers by ensuring accessible charging options for longer journeys. But despite these goals set by the government, the reality of establishing a widespread EV charging network has been a very slow process. And as of December 2023, only Ohio and New York have successfully opened charging stations under this new federal program. Now, a few other states have recently commenced their projects, planning to finish them by early 2024. Broadly available charging facilities are essential for meeting the Biden administration's objective of having EVs constitute half of all new car sales by 2030. However, a significant barrier remains, range anxiety or the fear of running out of power without access to a charging station, which is a major concern for many Americans considering an EV purchase. Now, to encourage EV adoption, the government has introduced incentives like tax credits up to $7,500 and the promise of a comprehensive network of high-speed chargers. And these chargers are expected to be conveniently located every 50 miles along major roads and highways, offering reassurance to drivers about the availability of charging options. The White House's goal is to establish a minimum of 500,000 public chargers by 2030. However, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory suggests that over 1 million public charging ports may be necessary by the end of the decade to adequately support the growing number of EVs in the United States. 
Now, a representative from RMI, a nonprofit organization supporting the energy transition, emphasized the urgent need to accelerate the development of new charging infrastructure. And this urgency stems from the public perception of inadequate charging options, which hinders interests in EVs. And EV sales are increasing more rapidly than any other automobile category. And the Inflation Reduction Act, a significant climate law passed under President Biden, has further fueled investments in EV production. Nonetheless, the expected surge in demand for EVs hasn't materialized as anticipated. State officials, particularly in regions like Tennessee, have cited challenges in navigating new federal requirements and a lack of prior experience in building chargers as reasons for slow rollout. And the process involves extensive planning and adherence to numerous federal stipulations before any construction can even start on this project. And the U.S. Transportation Department has established strict rules for the program, including technological standards and operational requirements. Chargers must be located within a mile of an interstate or a highway, maintaining operational status 97% of the time and have at least four functional charging ports. Now, states have been granted flexibility in contract awarding and fund allocation, leading to varied progress levels across the country. Ohio, for instance, emerged as a leader by opening its first federally funded charger this month, with more stations planned in the near future. In contrast, most states lag behind Ohio and New York in their progress. Building a comprehensive charging network involves not just construction, but also overcoming numerous bureaucratic and environmental review hurdles, a process that can span several years or possibly even a decade. And Tennessee's approach to building a charging system illustrates the complexity of the tasks, as it requires the chargers to be continuously operational and meet specific power thresholds, unlike simpler infrastructure projects like sidewalk construction or a road. Very basic. States with less dense populations and limited existing charging infrastructure like Wyoming are facing additional delays as well. These states are currently gauging interest levels for utilizing federal funds, which can cover a substantial portion of the project costs. The types of connections for charging stations are also a key consideration. While the federal requirement is for combined charging system connectors, states like Texas are opting to include connectors used by Tesla vehicles as well. Major automakers like Ford and General Motors have also announced plans to incorporate Tesla's charging ports in their future models, and most car companies now are doing the same. And senior officials in the Biden administration remain very optimistic about the future availability of chargers, though. They have pointed to streamlined processes such as simplified environmental permitting to help states expedite their projects. Gabe Klein, the executive director of the Federal Joint Office of Energy and Transportation, said that significant private investments in charging infrastructure have expressed confidence in reaching the administration's charger network goals before 2030, despite the apparent slow progress from a public perspective. Nick Nigro, founder of Atlas Public Policy, said that while substantial progress has been made, much of it remains unseen by the public. The complex nature of spending public funds involves numerous checks and balances contributing to the protracted development process. And despite the government's efforts, some potential EV buyers remain very hesitant, including myself. I have range anxiety. SpaceX is currently testing their Starship Booster and Starship Vehicle 25 at Boca Chica Starbase, Texas. And they've achieved the new milestone by conducting static fire tests for both stages of its Starship rocket system on the same day. 
This comes as the year ends for SpaceX, with a remarkable 96 space missions and is now gearing up for an important third orbital test flight of the Starship, potentially including a payload deployment. This is kind of a new thing. So Starship, which is notable for being the world's largest rocket, saw its upper and its first stages tested separately. And in a rare occurrence, SpaceX carried out static fire tests for both the first stage super heavy booster and the upper stage Starship rocket on the same day. And while the specifics of the engine tests are not fully disclosed, it's understood that at least one engine on the Starship's second stage was fired. This stage is also integral to NASA's Artemis program for landing astronauts on the moon, heightening the importance of these tests. Now, detailed observations of the second stage testing reveal that the ignition of the single stage Raptor engine was particular test demonstration of a flight-like startup, which is essential for in-space burns. Now, such specific testing is critical in assessing the Starship's capabilities for actual space missions, especially considering the precision required for in-space maneuvers and burns. And this test adds to the speculations about Starship's upcoming test flight, which may include launching a payload into space and demonstrate SpaceX's focus on replicating real-time mission conditions in its tests. Now, the Starship program began all the way back in 2020. It's actually longer ago than that, like 2016, they actually started this thing. But down at Boca Chica, it's around 2020. And it's been marked with rapid progress in development and testing. And over the years, the company has introduced new Raptor engines, upgraded a super heavy booster, improved the launch pad water deluge system, and streamlined its whole production process. And these advancements show that SpaceX is ready to go for the Artemis 3 mission. The manufacturing process is critical for SpaceX's strategy to realize its ambitious goals with Starship. Elon Musk has emphasized the necessity of producing at least 100 Starships annually to support the company's Mars colonizations plans. The Super Heavy Booster is designed to return to the launch site within minutes of the launch, but the second stage Starship takes considerably longer necessitating a higher production rate of starships. Now, to manage the expected launch frequency, SpaceX is also expanding its infrastructure by constructing a second launch site in Texas. The success of today's static fire tests is a huge step towards the upcoming third flight test. And this next phase will involve comprehensive evaluations, including full stack integration, ship and booster inspections, pad checks, and any necessary repairs to the spacecraft. And Elon Musk recently announced via X, formerly known as Twitter, the completion of a static fire test of the Flight 3 Super Heavy Booster. Now, these tests are critical to verify the functionality of the entire system, encompassing ground equipment, vehicle, engines, and both external and internal plumbing. Now, responding to a user on X, Musk highlighted the operational efficiency of the Super Heavy Booster, noting its rapid turnaround time. He said, as it returns in about six minutes and can theoretically be ready for reflight in about an hour. He's showing that the booster has the potential for frequent reuse. They would fly it back to Boca Chica Starbase, Texas, refurbish the booster, do any sort of upgrades, make sure it works, and then either fly it the same day or fly it within the next few days or the week. So we're going to be seeing boosters being reused, I believe, possibly by the end of 2024. Now, Musk's vision for SpaceX's production capabilities 
extends beyond the current targets. He envisions raising the production of Starships to 300 per year, far exceeding the initial goal of 100. Now, this increase is vital to accommodate the longer orbital and reuse cycles of the Starship compared to the booster. If they do end up catching the booster first, the Starship possibly will always land in the Pacific Ocean for a while. And if they can catch the Starship booster, uh, they can reuse those things. So 300 Starships per year seems about right. And Starship's longer orbit and ground track alignment requirements mean its reuse frequency might be limited to just once a day. Now, the ship needs to complete at least one orbit, but often several to have the ground track line back up with the launch site. So reuse may only be daily. He wants starships to launch like airplanes do, frequently, on the hour. And it seems like they're going to be able to do that if they have 300 starships. Now, these developments really suggest that SpaceX will focus more on increasing the production of starships than the super heavy boosters. The strategy aligns with the different operational and reuse dynamics of the two components of the Starship. And the significance of these tests cannot be understated, as they represent crucial steps in SpaceX's journey towards more advanced and frequent space missions. The successful static fire tests are important indicators of the Starship's readiness for more complex missions, including potential payload deployments. SpaceX's plans for the Starship extend beyond lunar missions, too. The company envisions using the rocket system for interplanetary travel, particularly for missions to Mars. The company's focus on rapid testing and development reflects its commitment to maintaining a leading position in the space industry as well. This is about business, and SpaceX's ability to conduct multiple significant tests in a single day shows that they have the expertise and the robustness of technical infrastructure so they can continue building starships faster and faster. But looking ahead, SpaceX's next steps will be closely monitored. The upcoming third orbital test flight of the Starship is particularly anticipated, as it may include the first attempt to deploy a payload into space, possibly Starlinks, a key capability for future missions. And with each successful test and development, SpaceX moves closer to realizing its vision of interplanetary travel and potentially changing the course of human space exploration. The company continues to set new standards in space technology and exploration, and the success of these static fire tests marks a step forward, a huge step forward for the IFT-3 flight, possibly early next year. We have a stream on our Space News Pod channel on YouTube, youtube.com slash spacenewspod, if you want to watch the live stream of Starship with my commentary. Please go there and subscribe and help us out. The New York Times has initiated a lawsuit against OpenAI and Microsoft, alleging copyright infringement. Now, the Times claims that its articles have been used without permission to train large language models like ChatGPT and Copilot, which now directly compete with its journalistic content. Now, this legal challenge could significantly impact the whole industry, particularly the development and use of AI-driven content generation. Now, the law asserts that OpenAI and Microsoft's AI models can generate content that either replicates or closely summarizes the expressive style of the times, undermining its unique relationships with its readership. Now, the complaint alleges this practice harms the newspaper's ability to generate revenue through subscriptions, licensing, advertising, and affiliate programs. Now, the New York Times contends that the AI models pose a threat to high-quality journalism, by compromising the ability of news outlets to protect and monetize their content. 
The suit criticizes Microsoft's Bing chat and OpenAI's ChatGPT for using the Times content to create competitive products without permission or compensation. The lawsuit also highlights the significant financial success of both OpenAI and Microsoft from utilizing the Times content. Now, despite attempts by the Times to negotiate a fair compensation for the use of its content, no agreement has been reached, prompting the legal action. The New York Times is seeking substantial damages, potentially in the billions of dollars, for the alleged copyright infringement. It also requests the court to compel OpenAI and Microsoft to cease using its content for training AI models and to remove its work from their datasets. Now, this legal action follows a trend where multiple news outlets, including the BBC, CNN, and Reuters, have blocked OpenAI's web crawlers, preventing the AI company from scraping their content. And on the other hand, some publishers like Axel Springer have embraced AI, forming agreements with OpenAI for content usage. The lawsuit could set a significant precedent in the evolving domain of AI and copyright law. The Times, as a major American media organization, is the first to file such a lawsuit over AI-generated content, potentially setting a course for others in the industry. And the Times' legal complaint does not specify an exact monetary amount, but emphasizes the need for billions in statutory and actual damages for the unauthorized use of its content. It further demands the destruction of any AI models and training data incorporating the Times' copyrighted material. Now, while Microsoft has declined the comment, OpenAI has not yet responded to the lawsuit. This legal challenge could shape the future of generative AI technologies and has major implications for the whole news industry, particularly for those who have adapted successful to online journalism. Now, the lawsuit addresses broader concerns about the use of intellectual property by AI systems, a topic that has caused unease in various creative industries. This includes complaints from celebrities, authors, and photography syndicates about AI's ability to replicate and generate content based on their copyrighted works. And the legal boundaries of copyright law often undergo scrutiny with technological advancements. The current lawsuit against AI use by OpenAI and Microsoft is the latest in a series of legal challenges that have accompanied major technological shifts, such as the emergence of radio and digital file sharing. Now, there's a growing expectation that this matter will ultimately reach the Supreme Court, given its importance and the novelty. While some publishers might settle, the fundamental issue of AI's use of copyrighted content will likely require legal resolution. Prior to this lawsuit, the Times attempted to negotiate with Microsoft and OpenAI to reach an amicable resolution, including the possibility of a commercial agreement and implementing technological safeguards around AI products. These talks, however, did not yield a solution. The stance of the technology industry on copyright concerns varies. Some, like venture capital firm uh, Andreessen Horowitz, argue that imposing copyright liabilities on AI companies could significantly hinder the development and the innovation. And the lawsuit frames ChatGPT and similar AI systems as potential competitors in the news sector. The Times is concerned that AI-generated responses using its content could lead to reduced website traffic, affecting its advertising and subscription revenues. And the Times is also addressing the potential damage to its brand caused by AI-generated inaccuracies or what they call hallucinations, where chatbots provide false information attributed to the New York Times. Now, such incidents could lead to misinformation and harm the newspaper's reputation for accuracy. 
Now, the lawsuit also discusses how AI systems like Microsoft's Bing Chat use content from the Times Wirecutter site without proper attribution or links, leading to revenue losses for the paper. Now, this highlights a broader financial implications of AI use of copyrighted material. Now, the lawsuit by the New York Times against OpenAI and Microsoft is a huge development between AI, technology, copyright law, and journalism. There's got to be a challenge for traditional media in the digital age, though they've already gone through a lot. Moving from physical copies of the New York Times to an all-digital platform, and now OpenAI and Microsoft are being sued for the digital use of their copy. Elon Musk's company X, formerly known as Twitter, has recently faced a legal setback. A federal judge has rejected X's attempt to halt a new California law, a decision that impacts how social media platforms manage and disclose their content moderation strategies. Now, the law in question, AB 587, was passed last year in California, and it mandates that large social media companies must publicly share their methods for moderating content, particularly content that involves hate speech, extremism, disinformation, and foreign political interference. Now, X challenged this law, arguing that it infringes on the First Amendment rights. However, U.S. District Judge William Shubb disagreed with X's stance. In his ruling, he stated that while the law does not impose a significant compliance burden on social media companies, it does not unjustifiably or excessively burden them within the boundaries of the First Amendment law. He emphasized that the required disclosures are straightforward and uncontroversial. X's legal complaint had contended that the law's requirements were very vague and that it would compel social media platforms to censor constitutionally protected content. Now, Judge Shubb's decision clarifies that AB 587 simply requires social media companies to report their existing policies on content moderation. He noted that these reports are purely factual and that the fact that they might relate to controversial issues does not make the reports themselves controversial. X's internal dynamics have also been shifting. Since Elon Musk's takeover, the company has seen significant job cuts, particularly in its trust and safety team. And this downsizing and the company's moderation policies are now under scrutiny in Europe as well. And the European Union has initiated a formal investigation into X's compliance with the Digital Services Act, or the DSA. This move, the first of its kind under the DSA, focuses on whether X has allowed the spread of illegal content, particularly in relation to the terrorist group Hamas's activities against Israel. Now, the lawsuit against California's law was filed by X in September. The law, signed by Governor Gavin Newsom, requires social media firms to submit biannual reports on their moderation of hate speech, misinformation, and other harmful content. Now, Judge Shubb's denial of X's motion to suspend the law underscores its significance and its enforceability. Now, X's argument in the law was that the law coerced companies into speech against their will and interfered with their editorial judgment. The company also argued that it pressured platforms to remove content that is protected by the Constitution. Now, the situation has also affected X's business relations. There has been a notable exodus of advertisers from the platform, including major companies like Apple, Disney, IBM, and Lionsgate Entertainment. This is partly attributed to the increased levels of hate speech and misinformation on the platform, as well as Musk's other public statements. And further complications for X arise from the EU's probe into its adherence to the DSA. This investigation is centered around content related to Hamas's attacks on Israel on October 7th, and the DSA aims to curb illegal online activity and disinformation.
Now, Judge Shub's page ruling on the California law emphasized the particular aspect of the reporting requirement. He noted that while it does place a burden on social media companies, it is not excessive or unjustified in the context of the First Amendment. This ruling is a setback for X's argument that the law violated free speech rights. Now, the law requires social media companies with substantial annual revenues to issue semi-annual reports describing their content moderation practices. And this includes data on objectable posts and how they're addressed. California Governor Newsom had expressed the need for transparency in how social media influences public discourse. And since Musk's acquisition of Twitter in 2022 for $44 billion, he's faced challenges in maintaining advertiser relationships and managing content on the platform. Reports have indicated an increase in hate speech on the platform following his takeover. And Judge Shubb has scheduled a conference with the lawyers involved in the case for February 26th. He emphasized the importance of the law's terms of service requirements, noting their potential impact on user decisions. And X's challenges extend beyond the U.S. In Europe, the company faces an investigation by the EU regarding its compliance with the DSA, particularly in response to content following Hamas's attack on Israel. X has stated its commitment to complying with the DSA and is cooperating with the regulatory process. X's legal battle in California and its ongoing challenges in Europe highlight that this is a complex issue between social media, law, and public policy. The outcome of these cases will likely have significant effects on how social media companies operate and are regulated globally in the future. Hey, thank you so much for listening today. I really do appreciate your support. If you could take a second and hit the subscribe or the follow button on whatever podcast platform that you're listening on right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. It helps out the show tremendously and you'll never miss an episode. And each episode is about 10 minutes or less to get you caught up quickly. And please, if you want to support the show even more, go to patreon.com slash stage zero. And please take care of yourselves and each other. And I'll see you tomorrow. Hey, thank you so much for listening today. I really do appreciate your support. If you could take a second and hit the subscribe or the follow button on whatever podcast platform that you're listening on right now, I'd greatly appreciate it. It helps out the show tremendously and you'll never miss an episode. And each episode is about 10 minutes or less to get you caught up quickly. And please, if you want to support the show even more, go to patreon.com slash stage zero. And please take care of yourselves and each other, and I'll see you tomorrow.